Well, let me begin with a bit of orientation as we jump into the book of Kings. We're starting a new series in the book of Kings. Let me begin with a bit of an orientation to the Old Testament in general. All right, so I don't know about you guys, but I love going to national battlefields. And I, the first thing I do, I go to a battlefield. And when I go to the battlefield, first thing I do is I go to the visitor center, right? And you go in the visitor center, and they show you a film. It's typically terrible, but it's normally informative, right? And they tell you, right, about the war that this battle was fought in. And then you tell, they tell you about the particular details of this battle. And then, with that orientation, you go off and explore the battlefield, right? So this is going to be the visitor center portion of the sermon, and then we're going to get in. You're going to, yeah. So that's kind of what we're doing. Orientation to the Old Testament. Uh, many of you know I like to call the Old Testament the kind of cake mold for the New Testament, right? The cake mold. It has the same shape. The Old Testament has the same shape and design as the cake, right? Which is the new mold, the new covenant, that sweet, tasty, delightful cake. So the Old Testament has the same shape, same design. It prepares us for what the cake will look like and smell like. Right, So the Old Testament is preparing us for the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. It's got similar shapes and designs, many of the same commands and character expectations. The Old Testament has atonement in it, but it does not have final atonement in it. Uh, the Old Testament has a king and a kingdom. We'll read a lot about that. But it does not have the final king and kingdom in it. Right, That's the idea. And so let's do a little bit of history. Let's catch us up. To where First Kings is, right? So we're going to start from the beginning and kind of tell you all that happened before. And I'm going to go quick. So the Old Testament begins with the creation of the world. God creates the world. Everything's good. Adam and Eve, first humans there. They are to be joint rulers. They're to be ruling the world, uh, subduing the world, having dominion over the world as God would. They're to be fruitful and to multiply, have kids that image God on the earth. So fill the world up with people that worship God and look like God. All right. They fail by disobeying God's command in Genesis 3. So therefore, since there's sin in the world, there's got to be separation from man and God. So therefore, sin and death enter into the world. Adam and Eve are exiled east. That's important to note. Not only that they were exiled, but which direction they went. Then God later makes a covenant with this guy by the name of Abraham. He is in the line of Adam and Eve. Obviously, all of us are. But uh, Ab, God makes this covenant with Abraham and he tells him that from his seed, from his offspring, would be one that would come to be a blessing to all nations of the seed of Abraham. Abraham believes in this promise. It is credited to him as righteousness, setting up the shape for how all of us will enter into the covenant, namely through faith, not by works. Paul makes a big deal out of that in Romans 4. But Abraham is the, is the father, as it were, of the physical offspring of these people we read a lot about in the Old Testament, the Hebrews or the Jews or the Israelites. Uh, they come through at, uh, Abraham's first child that was born miraculously through the barren Sarah. Uh, that son, Isaac, marries another gal that's barren, but the Lord miraculously works life in her. And they have twin sons. And the younger, Jacob, goes on to have, he's the son of promise that carries the promise out. He has 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. They grow as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But before that, they go down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. And as they're down in Egypt, these 12 tribes grow. And there's a whole bunch of folks of Israel. Uh, the nation of Israel. So big, the king of Egypt doesn't like it. He puts them in slavery. They're there for 420 years in slavery in Egypt. God then, through his servant Moses, leads the throngs of Israelites out of slavery. And the last thing that he does in order to introduce and bring about that freedom from slavery is he takes them out by the blood of an unblemished male lamb. They're delivered out. They go through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea. God's enemies are vanquished. They then go. God then gives them his word. And then they eventually get into the promised land. You can see all those shapes in the New Testament. But once they get into the land, Moses is out of the way. Uh, things Once they go in the land, things go bad, uh, fast. As we will see in Kings, the Israelites reject the law. They begin to do what is right in their own eyes. Eventually, they will uh, they want to be just like the world. And so what they do is they ask for a king like the world. They want a king just like everybody else has a king. In the same way, the same kind of king. 
The Lord is angry at this because he understands that by their request to ask for a king like the world, they're rejecting him as king. He's not happy about this. But regardless, mercifully, the Lord told them in Deuteronomy 17 that there would be a king. And so he brings about a king. And after the failure of the first king, Saul, God graciously then appoints an unlikely king by the name of David. A shepherd boy, the youngest of Jesse's sons, to be king over Israel. After David is appointed king, God makes a covenant with him, like he did with Abraham years before that. And this promise to David is huge for kings. It's the kind of banner that hangs over the book. God makes a covenant with David. The whole point of kings, guys, is to trace God's faithfulness to this promise to David the king. And here's the heart of that promise. 2 Samuel 7. By the way, Old Testament broken up in three chunks. Prophet, priest, sorry, law, prophets, writings. First five books is the law. Second section is the prophets, a lot of the history. Third section is the writing. Psalms, kind of poetry, those kinds of things. So Samuel Kings is in that second section. The covenant's been made. So here's the promise God makes to David. Second Samuel 7, 12 to 13. God's talking here. When your days are fulfilled, talking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Underline that. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. All right, so that's the promise. That's the banner that hangs over the entire books of Kings. Plaster it to the back of your eyeballs, right? Because that's what's going to be in this book is the, is the author is tracing out that promise, right? So what that does now is that catches us up to 1 Kings 1, right? That kind of gets us, that gives us a, a sense of everything that's gone before it. But let me, before we jump into Kings, I want to give you two ways to kind of read and interpret the Old Testament because it's a, it's a bit of a different world than our world as it were and even hermeneutic or interpreting the bible it's a little bit different so first things first thing you need to know uh, of the world of the old testament that's documenting the old covenant the old covenant is that promise to abraham and the law that's given to moses first thing you need to know in the old testament that's different than the new testament the new covenant is that the nation of israel that we're reading about is a geopolitical nation state whereas that's not the case now God's people, as it were, were a geopolitical nation state. And by geo, geo, I mean it has geographic borders like any country does today. And by political, I mean that it had laws in that geographic center. And those laws were the old covenant given to Moses. And those laws were expected to be lived out and worked out in that nation state. All right. So those laws, again, are the Old Covenant law given to Moses, given to the people. And this is unique to the Old Testament world in that, unlike the New Covenant in the New Testament, which today is a spiritual kingdom. We have no nation state today. There is no theocracy. But back then it was under the New or under the Old Covenant. So back then under the Old Covenant, church and state were not only combined, more than that, since God's presence was dwelling in their midst, they were to be, that nation of Israel was to be a witness to all the world. God intended this to kind of be like heaven on earth to see what it looks like. And as a consequence, God intended judgments to be enacted right then and there. All right? You're going to see this today. Judgments are sometimes violent. But insofar as they are in keeping with God's will, they are never undeserved judgments. Just as hell is not undeserved and is awful. God is a just and a holy God. And we have to remember, right, that uh, we as human beings have value. We're created in the image of God. But we also rebel against God and deserve nothing. And so this is even more true for Israel that had the ground rules for their kind of marriage right up in front. And sinner. They knew that going in. And so God was graciously using the Israelites to display his glory on the earth in that geopolitical nation state. Therefore, he could not tolerate any sin or injustice. Otherwise, they would lie to the world about who God is and what he's like. And so first thing to remember, Old Testament is a geopolitical nation state, a kind of theocracy that is not the case now uh, in the economy of God's kingdom. But another thing to mention 
uh, in reading and interpreting the Old Testament. Second one, super important. The authors of the Old Testament and kings specifically are not newspaper journalists just reporting the news. You need to know that. The authors are not just newspaper journalists just telling you what happened. They are not just telling us what happened and then leaving it up to us to figure out what it means. They're not doing that. They know what they're writing about and they know why they're writing. They have a point that they're trying to communicate. The Bible makes clear that the words of the author of all the books of the Bible, but especially Kings, those words that they write are inspired or breathed out by God. Jesus himself believed that. Why do I believe the Bible is the word of God? Because Jesus did. And Jesus is my king. So these words are God's words through those authors. And so the book of Kings is God's authoritative interpretation of the events of the Old Testament. That sentence is so important. The book of Kings is God's authoritative interpretation of the events of the Old Testament. The text tells us what God wants us to take away from the events. Right? So our job as readers then is to understand, is to come to understand what the author's interpretation of those events are. Our job as readers is not to make up our own meaning. Our job is to discover under the power of the Spirit what the author's trying to say. To listen to the narrator, just like you would listen to a narrator of a movie. Listen to the narrator's voice throughout the story because the author's point for each passage is God's point that he means to deliver to us, to share with us. And so there's not one meaning to the Israelites and then another meaning to those of us in the New Covenant. The point of the Old Testament was to prepare us for Christ and his kingdom and the authors knew that. Say that again. The Old Testament authors knew that they were writing to prepare us for Christ and his kingdom. That's why they wrote. You say, Nathan, how in the world do you get there? I'll give you a couple verses. One, John 5, 39. Jesus talking. He says, you search the scriptures. One of those books would be, by the way, Kings. You search Kings, Jesus says. You search the scriptures or Kings because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they, it is Kings that bears witness about me. What does Jesus think Kings is about? First him. Another one, referencing the prophets that wrote in the Old Testament. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them, the ones that are writing in the Old Testament. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves. It was revealed to them, not themselves, but you, New Covenant community, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And so as we go through Kings, we need to be looking for the author's intention, not our own, in order to help us understand the gospel of Jesus Christ in his kingdom. So it was revealed to the author of Kings, for instance, that's why he wrote. So the Old Testament, friends, is Christian scripture. And so, beloved, if you're in Christ, this is our ancestry, for better or for worse at times. And so that means, guys, I don't have to do interpretive gymnastics to get to the gospel. It's already in the minds of the authors. So the author of Kings, as an example... He already knows about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. He knows about all of that before he writes the first word of this book. He's aware of everything. So he's going back in to put the story together so as to communicate what those events, what we need to understand about those events to prepare us for Christ and his kingdom. And so Kings is God's condensed version of a span of 400 years that means to instruct us about Christ in his kingdom. So guys, pray for the preachers, pray for me, pray for the other brothers that will preach from this, that we will come up under, we will arrive at and come up under the author's intention and not our own. And by the way, that's why you see a bracketed S in the sermon card that Lord willing will be here next week. Yes, and it is beautiful. Man, I love this thing. I might, I might, I might, I might frame this thing. It's so pretty. There it is. Isn't that beautiful? So that's the reason, that's why you see the bracketed S. Right? The idea is that the book of Kings is about the kings, plural, but it's pointing us to the king, singular. That's what it's doing. It means to instruct us in that. That's what it's trying to do. So in light of that, friends, let's now come out of the visitor center. And let's explore the battlefield now. Okay? We've got the orientation. We've got what we need to know. Let's now go on out. We've got a little, we, we kind of understand. There's still a lot of stuff we don't understand, but we'll kind of come. we got a little, our orientation. Y'all with me? 
Okay. Let's dive in. Big idea this morning. First Kings 1 and 2. Yes, that's right. First Kings 1 and 2. Big idea this morning. The kingdom is established. The kingdom is established. If you go back to the last sentence of chapter 2, you'll see that written very clearly. That's the big idea this morning. If you lose track of something out here on the battlefield, you forget something about the visitor center, go back to that statement. The kingdom is established. Okay. So as you leave that movie theater, I want to take you to another movie theater on the battlefield. Imagine us all sitting in the movie theater. And there it is. The screen goes black. And then it comes up. I want you to imagine in your minds, the first thing you see on the screen is a beleaguered, destroyed, and destructed city. That's the first thing you see. It comes on the screen and just broken down ancient city, destroyed and desolate. And it says beneath it, Jerusalem, 586 B.C. That's the first thing you see. Look over there. We see the walls are torn down. All torn down. We look over here, we see some homes are desolate. Nobody's really in them. We hear off of the distance a baby crying. We see right there in front of us a mother weeping, her hands over her face. Shockingly, we look over there to the temple, the temple of God, the temple that was housing the presence of God years before. And what do we see? The temple is now rubble, all torn down. Imagine that scene. Look up in the sky. The sky is gray. Everything is terrible. We look around. Only a few people can be found here in this formerly great city of Jerusalem because most of the Israelites are gone. They have been carted off east again to Babylon. They've been destroyed, destructed, and they've been exiled just like Adam and Eve were exiled for their unfaithfulness. They're captives. Israel is captives again. Guys, that's where the book of Kings ends. And so we ask the question, what happened? What in the world happened? How did it get there? And also a significant question that Kings is wanting you to be thinking about. Are God's promises still true? Is he still going to fulfill them? What happened? Is God's promises still true? Because it doesn't look good. And with that, we look back up at the movie screen. And it goes black again. And then it comes up. And on the screen it says, 400 years earlier. That's 1 Kings 1. And the first thing we see on the movie screen, sitting over there in the corner, is in a beautiful, extravagant home, we see a shivering old man. He's really old and he's shivering. That's the first thing we see. Sitting in this beautiful, extravagant, gorgeous home. And that man, we learn, is King David. The greatest king in the history of Israel. First line in First Kings is this. Now King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. So what do they do? We learn here in First Kings, they go out and they look all over Israel to find a very beautiful woman. To attend to David, probably spoon. Y'all ever spooned? Right, spoon to get him warm. He couldn't get warm. And so they find a very beautiful woman to tend to David. And then we get this in verse 4. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him. But the king knew her not. So the woman's name was Abishag. I know some of you are looking for names for your kids. Abishag. All right. Abishag. She's there. David's sort of with her a lot, but the Bible says, but he knew her not. In other words, it's saying he didn't do with her what married people do together. He didn't do that. Now that's important, right? Because we've seen David before. David has a bit of a reputation. What the author wants, I think maybe to think maybe in the back of our heads is David doesn't treat this woman like he did Bathsheba. But more than that, I think even more important than that is this. I think the author wants us to see that we are on the precipice of the history of Israel. And the same way, and I can't believe this happened this week. The Queen of England dies. She's reigned for 70 years. And England's like, well, what do we do now? How's the transfer power going to go? Same things here. 
They The author wants you to see this old man, King David, all these promises. He's about to die. And so the author should be, you guys should be going, all right, what's going to happen? God made a promise that his son would build him a house. How's this going to go? He seems weak. He seems like he's about to die. What, what, what's going to happen? That's what the author's trying to do. What will come of the promises of God to David to have a son that will be a king that will sit on the throne and build a house? And it is with that fresh upon our minds, we move from the shivering David that's aging and about to die, that we read verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Uh-oh. Not good. This is a problem. We're we're concerned about what will happen to Israel, what would happen to God's promise to David to have a son who would build him a house. And the first thing we hear after seeing the shivering and almost to die David is that we have one of David's son is appointing himself king. Not good. So what Adonijah does, he does the equivalent of getting in the presidential Cadillac surrounding the caddy with 50 secret service agents and riding into Washington, D.C. It's basically what Adonijah is doing. Waving at the people as he goes by. Verse 6 says, uh, tells us that Adonijah was a handsome man. Ladies love this dude. Ah, he's so, what a great king. At verse 6, we see a, a soft rebuke of David that he never corrected this kind of behavior in Adonijah. Parents, can I just speak to you? Love your children enough to discipline your kids. Don't let them believe that they can exalt themselves. Instead, teach them to humble themselves before the Lord. But then we see in verse 7, uh, we see Adonijah kind of gets his running mates together. He kind of puts his campaign team together. We see first he gets Joab That's David's old military commander. That's kind of the former army chief of staff, right? And then he gets Abiathar, which is a known priest also in David's old regime. And so what seems Adonijah seems to be doing is he's positioning himself as the rightful king in the line of David. And he's kind of giving off his credentials. So take a look. See, I got the same kind of team as the real king, David. But take a look. Look at verse 8. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shemai and Ray and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Listen for the author. He wants you to see there were some people not with him. And not only were they not with Adonijah, it seems that this was a conscious decision the storyteller wants us to understand. That these guys are not invited. I mean, think about it. There's tons of people not invited. But the author is bringing up these dudes because he wants you to know these guys should have been invited and they weren't. And it's a conscious decision of Adonijah not put in there. Look at verse 10. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the mighty men or Solomon, his brother. Now, this little triumvirate of people that are not invited, these guys get repeated over and over again by the narrator in this first chapter. So he seems, the storyteller seems to want us to understand these guys are a big deal. They should have been there. But most importantly, the point here is Adonijah seems to know what he's doing by his not inviting a prophet or Solomon. That's verse 10. It seems to want you to know it doesn't have David's inner circle of, of kind of mighty men, but also significantly no prophet and no Solomon. He's writing. The, uh, he sees the writing on the wall. Adonijah. Uh, he sees the writing on the wall. He's making his move. He doesn't want anybody messing up his parade. His new campaign. And so the prophet Nathan sees this. And he's concerned about this transfer of power. This guy appointing himself. And so Nathan the prophet makes his move. And again our concern is the son of David and his throne. So we got high drama already. David's about to die. There's already a rivalry brewing. Is God going to abandon his promise? So here's what Nathan does. Nathan goes to one of David's wives, a gal by the name of Bathsheba, mother of Solomon, and he asks her. Nathan asks Bathsheba, "Hey, did you hear about Adonijah rigging the election, appointing himself?" And David doesn't even know. Now, again, Nathan has a lot of history with David and Bathsheba, doesn't he? 
I think there's a lot of history here, right? So because, right, Nathan's the dude, Nathan's the prophet that goes and rebukes David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Bathsheba's wife murdered. So Nathan has a lot of history with, and he's real comfortable in approaching King David. So he talks to Bathsheba and he and Bathsheba come up with a plan to try to go in there and let David know what's going down so that they can do the right thing. And so they know that Solomon is supposed to be the proper king and they see a problem. So he, Nathan and Bathsheba, they get a plan together right? and they decide how they're going to go and talk to the aging David. Take a look at verse 17 to 20 of chapter 1. We see their plan in action. Bathsheba is the first one to go in to talk to David. Bathsheba walks in. Abishag is is tending to the shivering old man. And Bathsheba, his wife, says to him. She said to him, verse 17, My Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me and shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king. Although you, my Lord, the king, don't know it. He has sacrificed oxen and fat and cattle and sheep in abundance. He's invited the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he is not invited. And now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Bathsheba also says, like, listen, I'm in a vulnerable place too. me and Solomon. Like, if this dude gets up there, Adonijah, we could get hurt. Just after this, as planned, Nathan walks into the room. From verses 22 to 27, Nathan basically says the same thing that Bathsheba just says to him. So the tension of the transfer of power builds. But our concerns are satisfied when after we hear Bathsheba and Nathan talk, David moves swiftly to do as he promised, to appoint Solomon as the true and rightful king. And we say true and rightful king uh, or the promise of David to make him king. You can read about that from 1 Chronicles 22.9, which, by the way, the author of Kings will quote from Chronicles numerous times or at least one time. And so the author of Kings already knows about Chronicles. So in Chronicles, we already know David is supposed to establish Solomon, not Adonijah. So David knows he needs to go into action. So he goes into action. Verses 28 to 32, David tells Bathsheba, listen, it's cool. I'm going to take care of this. All right. Solomon's the man. We're going to make this thing right. Verse 32 to 48 is all about the inauguration ceremony details. Kind of working it out. Let me read for you verses 32 to 35. This is the kind of planning, probably what they're doing with, is it Charles, King Charles of England? Same kind of thing. How are we going to do the ceremony? So here it is. This is for the real, more important kingdom. Here we go. King David said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. Gihon, by the way, is a spring inside of Jerusalem. It would be sort of like saying Tinley Town to D.C. And let Zadok, the priest, and Nathan, the prophet, there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Benaiah hears this. He's pumped up. All right. Amen. Let's go. He says a blessing on Solomon. Right. And so Zadok the priest, Benaiah, he's a military guy. They go get David's mule and they put Solomon on it. And Solomon, the future king coming in as the son of David, rides on the back of David's mule into Jerusalem. Some of you are smiling, and you should be. Ever heard of you? Anybody know of another king that was the son of David? That rode on the back of a mule into Jerusalem to establish a kingdom? Come on, y'all. This is amazing. This is written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. One of the, what, Nathan, why do you believe the Bible? Well, there's one reason why. 
Because it says things and things happen in ways in which no man could ever create. Nevertheless, there's Solomon, right? This is like Solomon. Now he's got the real Cadillac, the presidential Cadillac with all, remember the, the, the flags flapping in the breeze with the presidential seals on it. And he's riding down Pennsylvania Avenue. That's what this, that's what's happened. He's the king. He's the true and rightful one. This reminds us, of course, of Jesus riding into the back, riding on the back of a mule. And notice, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but he, Jesus rides on the back of a mule into Jerusalem to establish his reigns. And remember the people when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem, remember the people scream, Hosanna. And the authors want us to understand that that's a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Another prophet that said this would happen. They saw Jesus, those people in Jesus, as they, they saw him, they saw Jesus as the answer to the Davidic covenant, as the true son of David, since Jesus himself saw himself that way. Don't let people tell you guys that Jesus just saw himself as a, as a king or some prophet, sorry, or some just teacher. Jesus was the one that made the conscious decision. Notice he didn't need another king to tell him to go get on a donkey. He appointed the donkey. And he got on the donkey and he rode it into Jerusalem. And on that Palm Sunday, Jesus, what he was saying when he came into Jerusalem, he was saying, I am the answer to God's promise. Jesus was saying, I am the true and lasting son of David. I am the answer to the Davidic covenant. And the Israelites at that time of Jesus, they saw this. They would have known about the story of Solomon, David's son riding into Jerusalem as a coronated king. They would have known that, which is why they're saying, here it is. Only to find out just a couple days later they want want him crucified. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Back to Solomon. Verses 44 to 46, we see the inauguration ceremony. All right? We can imagine all the events. But there's something very significant to notice that the narrator wants us to pick up on that's different than Adonijah's self-appointed inauguration. Something different. Adonijah had a priest and a military commander, but no prophet. No representative of God's word. That's a big deal. Because as we will see throughout Kings, God rules by his word and his pulpit are his prophets. But Adonijah had no prophet at his inauguration ceremony because he invited himself. He exalted himself. He didn't invite Nathan to the ceremony. He didn't invite God's word into his rule. Because, as Adonijah would know, there was no anointing from the Lord there. It was not part of God's plan to have Adonijah on the throne. He was not David's true son to take the throne. He was self-appointed, not God-appointed. There's no word of God represented there. But with Solomon... Solomon, I want you to think about this. At the inauguration ceremony, Solomon is in the presence of a prophet and a priest as he is appointed a king. Prophet, priest, and a king. We see the Lord's will coming together here on this critical day and evaluating the Lord's promise to David. A priest would have been one to intercede for the people of God. That's Zadok. A prophet whose job is to speak the word of God to God's people. They confer and anoint the son of David as king who rules over God's people. Oh, that there would be one that was both prophet, priest, and king. Once again, we get ahead of ourselves. The point here is, as we read in verse 46, chapter 1, Solomon sits on the royal throne. Sits on the royal throne. Transfer power is done. If you look ahead in chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, we see that David dies. But there are still significant threats that need to be dealt with. We're asking that question, will God's promises to David real ring true? Or, because we've got these competing kings, right? Or will Adonijah, Joab... Or others destroy the son of David, Solomon, from the throne in Israel. What's going to happen? So let me go ahead and answer those questions and then we'll have some application and pray. 
So we learn of at least three threats to the throne of Solomon in this chapter. And then one more in the next chapter of chapter 2. So three threats. We got a threat to the kingdom here in Adonijah. They have a threat in Abiathar, the priest. We have a threat in Joab, having all positioned themselves against the rightful son of David, Solomon, as king. These guys are positioning themselves against God's king. There's another guy by the name of Shemai at the end of chapter 2. We'll come to him. So let's start with, we're going to look at each of these guys. The author's going to go out of his way to see these threats are going to be dealt with. Let's start with Adonijah. In chapter 1, verse 41, we read all about the presidential ball of Adonijah. We can imagine all the reverie, all the songs, all the music, everything's going great, everybody's part. Woohoo, everything's great. Yeah. Israel's going to be awesome. They're parting it up. When they hear, they're in there, music's going, they're eating, they're drinking, and all of a sudden in the distance they hear this. What was that? Y'all have ever walked by a stadium and you hear the big noise like I'm going to do? That's sort of what they hear. We can imagine maybe Joab, you know, sort of puts his wine goblet down. What was that? What was that big old sound? What does the uproar in the city mean? And about that time, Abiathar, that's the priest, Abiathar's son, Jonathan, he rolls into the party and he brings some sober news. Adonijah, we can imagine maybe has a turkey leg in his mouth, right? He puts it down and he's like, what's going on? In verse 43, Jonathan says, David has made Solomon king. Slide down to verse 49. In between there is the inauguration ceremony of Solomon. Slide down to verse 49, right about that point, when Jonathan brings the sobering news to the party, the music stops, and we read in verse 49 that Adonijah and all of his campaign workers, they see the writing on the wall and they peace out. They run away. Adonijah sees parties over. It's been a great time for a few days as king. Adonijah immediately knows he's in trouble. Look at verse 50. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Now what in the world's going on here with this holding, taking out? He leaves the party and goes to the temple complex. That's where the horns were. This altar was. And he's holding on to these horns. What's going on with that? You're going to see Joab's going to do the same thing. Here's what's happening. You ever watched a wrestling match? Where there's like a tag team wrestling match and there's a guy outside of the ring and there's a guy fighting on the inside of the ring. And remember the guy on the outside of the ring, he can't do anything to him. He's safe, right? Until he hand slap, he jumps in, then he's in. But the guy on the outside of the ring, you can't do anything. He's safe. Or maybe when you and your brother or sister were playing together, right? You were, they were going to tackle you, but you like the couch was the safe place. Well, I'm touching the couch. You can't get me. That's what Adonijah is doing. Exodus 21 makes this clear. You go hold on to those horns in the, in the temple complex of, uh, the temple complex, that sacrificial altar. If you hold that, Exodus 21 says nobody can touch you. They can't do anything. It's like the safe space. It's like being outside the wrestling ring. Well, here we go. Adonijah is trying to get outside the ring. He's basically going to hold on to that thing till he's sure that his brother Solomon's not going to whack him. So Solomon says, in verse 52, if he, speaking of Adonijah, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. Now I'll come back. I know I'm, gonna, I'm skipping over a really important section, so know that I'm going to come back to that. Skip over those first few verses of chapter 2. Look down to chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. There we find that Adonijah does have wickedness in him. Solomon immediately says, he's cool, just let him go. But if he has wickedness in him, we're going to deal with that. And it finds, we find out, the storyteller tells us he does have wickedness in him. He goes to Bathsheba, Adonijah goes to Bathsheba, and he asks Bathsheba to play matchmaker. He says to her, go, go over to Abishag. Like, first off, she's very beautiful, but also, you know, it'll kind of look good, like if I marry her. Because then it'll be like another David kingdom world, kind of coming into my world. Bathsheba goes in there. He asks for Abishag to be given to Adonijah. Solomon gets ticked off at this because he understands this to be another way that Adonijah is repositioning himself as the heir of David to the throne by taking David's servant. 
And so it's a perceived threat to the transfer of the kingdom. The author wants us to see that. And so Solomon says, chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, here we go. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me. And more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David, my father, and who has made me a house as he promised. See what Solomon's doing there? He's invoking the Davidic covenant. Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. This is a guy that's going to become the army chief of staff of the kingdom. He takes Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him, Adonijah, down and he died. One threat to the kingdom taken care of. Second threat, Abiathar. Take a look at him. The priest that participated in the role in the revolt of the kingship of Solomon. We read in verse 26 that Abiathar carries the ark of the Lord God before David. All right, so he's carrying the ark in. If you all know that story, David's out in front. Remember, he's, David's dancing, right? He's holding on to the ark. He's one of those priests. And so because of that, Solomon doesn't execute final judgment on Abiathar. But he does remove Abiathar's status as priest. In other words, Abiathar gets defrocked. It'd be like me, let's say, like I lose, I can't pastor anymore. I'm alive, you know, whatever. You can come to church, Nathan, but you're not our pastor anymore, kind of thing. And I want you to notice something. Look at chapter uh, 2, verse 27. This is really important. This said, his Abiathar getting defrocked, verse 27, this fulfilled the word of the Lord concerning the house of Shiloh. This is a big deal. This goes all the way back to 1 Samuel 2 when God makes a promise to Eli, not a good uh, not a good priest, that there's going to be this judgment on his kindred. But the point here is, what the author, what the narrator wants us to see is he wants you guys to see that the word of the Lord proved true. That's the important part. He wants you to see that the word is powerful, that's more powerful than everything else. And God is fulfilling his promises. That's why it says, all right, and this fulfilled the word of the Lord. He wants you to, be, he's trying to build your confidence in the Lord's word. All right, second threat neutralized. Third set, what about third threat, Joab. This is the former army chief of staff that threatened Solomon's reign by siding with Adonijah's self-exaltation. And as I mentioned before, remember, he also, like Adonijah, he runs to the temple complex, grabs the horns of the altar, and he's trying to get, right, he's trying to get outside the wrestling ring so nobody can mess with him. That's kind of what he's doing. But this won't work for Joab because there's more to the story with Joab. Back in verse 5 of chapter 2, right, David is giving his rundown of final instructions to Solomon before he dies. And there we learn David tells Solomon of some unfinished business that David put off that Solomon needs to clean up. And we learn of the events of what comes in 2 Samuel 18 where Joab murders two army generals in cold blood. He murders them for no good reason. And so not only do we have the whole Benedict Arnold thing going on with Joab, we also see Joab is a dangerous dude that needs to have an answer for his murdering. Back to Joab holding on to this altar outside the wrestling ring. But the forthcoming army chief of staff, Benaiah, he rolls up on the scene. He sees Joab and he tells Joab, listen, leave the temple complex and come out and let's have a chat. In other words, what's Benaiah saying? Get in the wrestling ring. He's trying to slap his hand. But Joe, no. Benaiah goes back to Solomon and says, man, he's, he's holding on to the altar. He, he ain't getting into the wrestling ring. He's hanging on to the safe place. And Solomon's like, all right, listen. Chapter 2, verse 31 and 32. Solomon replies, do as he has said. Strike him down. So Joab says, by the way, Joab says back there, listen, I'm going to die here. Job says, I'm going to die outside the ring, as it were. I ain't leaving. You're going to have to kill me. So Solomon says, chapter 2, verse 31 to 32, because Joab knows he's guilty. Chapter 2, verse 31, 32. Do as he has said, strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. Note where Solomon says the guilt is. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head. Benaiah goes back 
to the temple complex. Joab's holding on to that altar and he commits Joab to the electric chair. Death penalty. Third threat neutralized. That only leaves one more guy. This guy by the name of Shimei. We learn about him from 2 Samuel 19. Basically, this guy was part of King Saul's family. King Saul's the first king of Israel. And Shimei is of the tribe of Benjamin. Y'all thought tribalism was bad? Listen, that ain't no new thing. Tribalism was bad way back years ago. And Shimei was part of the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And King Saul found out that the Lord anointed David the king... King Saul goes after David. David flees for his life. And as he's fleeing for his life, we learn back in 2 Samuel 19 that this guy Shimei, who's in the tribe with King Saul, think Saul is his boy, right? You thought Democrats and Republicans are fighting against each other, man. You got Benjamites fighting with, right, other Judaites. And so this guy, Shimei, as David is fleeing, he's the Lord's anointed king. He's fleeing and Shimei literally is throwing rocks at him and cursing the Lord's anointed king. The amazing thing is, is after the whole thing settles out, Saul gets out of the way. David comes back into the city. He's king. After that, David's like, you're cool, Shimei. But back to those instructions that David has given to Solomon, he gives him some more. Listen, there's some more work that I didn't do that I should have done that you need to clean up. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, David tells Solomon he needs to do something for this Shimei guy. He's a threat. He's done something wrong. And we learn about what Solomon does in chapter 2, verses 36 to 46. Basically, Solomon strikes up a gentleman's agreement with Shimei and puts him on house arrest. That's what he does. That's the agreement. And Shimei's like, cool, I'm down with it. I agree. If I leave my house, you can strike me dead. I'm down with that. Thank you. Appreciate that. And things go great for three years until Shimei's slaves run away from home, and he goes and tracks them down. He disobeys the gentleman's agreement of house arrest. And so therefore, Solomon hears about this in chapter 2, verse 43, as a failure to keep his word, another imposing threat to the kingdom. And this, in combination to all that he did to his father David, is the reason to receive the electric chair. And so Benaiah went down and struck down Shimei. Now all the threats were removed from King Solomon. Which gives us the final sentence of chapter 2. This is what the author, the narrator, wants you to see. We get that line. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. We're supposed to met like peaceful. Cool. Okay. We got through that. That's what he wants us to see. God's promises were continuing. David's rightful son on the throne and the immediate threats, they're neutralized. The kingdom is established. The right guy's on the throne. God's promise to David is proving true for now. So what do we take away from all this? Two things, quickly. One thing to avoid, one thing to embrace. Here's our application. One thing to avoid, one thing to embrace. Here's the thing to avoid. Avoid self-exaltation. Avoid self-exaltation. Adonijah and all his kingly campaign team paid dearly for exalting themselves and trying to impose themselves over and against God's rightful king. By their intentionally not inviting the prophet, priest, and true king of Israel, they revealed their prideful intentions to reject the will of the Lord and go their own way. And they paid for it with their lives. The same is true for Shimei, who cursed the anointed king of Israel. So guys, we live in a time and a place where we are encouraged to do as Adonijah does. To create our own realities, no matter what God has said. Freedom in our day is defined as throwing off all external authorities, especially the religious ones that tell us that we can't do something or be something. That's the world we live in. You will, be, you will be considered virtuous if you're rebellious. Especially to what this book says. You will, considered, you will be considered virtuous. Virtue is no longer defined as it has been for centuries as self-restraint. Virtue is now defined by being like Adonijah and his piles. By exalting yourself and creating your own reality. No matter what the Lord has decreed. You will be considered virtuous the more that you don't Invite the prophet, the word. You'll be considered 
virtuous if you don't invite the priest. You will be virtuous if you don't invite the true king, Christ, as Lord and King. By exalting yourself, creating your own reality. By declaring yourselves kings and queens as rulers, that is, of your own realities and rejecting God's true authority. And I ask a simple question to that. Are we the better for it? Are we in a better place than we are when we're not following Christ as king? Because we are hitting new highs for suicide, depression, anxiety, loneliness, stress, drug, alcohol, porn addiction, gun violence, tribalisms. All of this is just at all-time highs. Our so-called freedoms seem to be only making things worse. Beloved, avoid exalting yourself and learn to be counterculture as Jesus was and serve God and others, looking to his word. Look again at Adonijah's feast. It was full of pomp and revelry. It looked great. But as soon as the reality of God's true king was realized, everybody left him. And he found himself pleading for mercy at the altar of God. Jesus says it so clearly. Listen to this. He says it so clearly. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. That was true for Adonijah, Joab, Abiathar, for Shemai. And that's true for everybody still today. You exalt yourself, you will be humbled. You humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Solomon, you ever thought about this? He never sought the throne. And yet it came to him. In the right way, in the right time, by the right people. And Adonijah, on the other hand, tried to force his way onto it. And it worked for a while. He even went through some religious ceremonies, right? But it was all a sham. Just as quickly as the kingdom rose, it fell. He exalted himself, and so he was humbled to the grave. And so, guys, listen. Avoid drawing attention to yourself. Avoid trying to appear powerful and put together. Avoid trying to create a world that puts you on the throne of your own reality, your own interpreted realities, Because it only leads to ruin. We can think of two contemporary lives of Adolf Hitler and Corrie ten Boom. Had we been alive in 1930s, we would have looked at those two people and said, well, here's a guy, an Adolf Hitler, that has tons of glory, tons of power, tons of praise. And we'd have walked right by Corrie ten Boom, not thought anything of her. And yet, what do we find at the end of history? Just in a few years, Hitler sitting in a bunker, ready to kill himself as his glory fades. And meanwhile, Corrie ten Boom walks out of a prison camp and declares the glory of Christ for decades. You exalt, you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. You humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Christ himself, who was the true and lasting king, never used his authority for his own glory. But instead, he laid his own glory down, submitted to his heavenly father in order to purchase people in love. Though he was God, he took the form of a man. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because he did, he was exalted to the true and lasting throne, a throne far better than Solomon's. Such that because of his sacrifice on the cross for sin, he, Jesus, is now exalted and his name is above every name. And a day will come when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And though they crucified Jesus after he came in on that mule, as it were, into Jerusalem, he does rule. Oh, friend, if you have not repented for all of the ways that you have appointed yourself king or queen. For all of the ways that you have not invited the prophet to your life. If you have not lived in obedience to God's good and gracious commands. I call you to repentance this morning. Avoid exalting yourself. Invite the prophet into your life. Invite the true king into your life. And you'll be exalted. But insofar as you try to come up over those things, it won't go well for you. You may have a short time, things are good, but it'll go poorly for you in the end. Trust in Christ and be born again. No king lasts forever. There was one that ruled for 70 plus years and she died. Every king dies but one. And even he died and triumphed over it. Trust in that king. Submit your life to that king and prosper. Which leads me to the second point. We'll end here. 
Avoid self-exaltation and embrace the Lordship of Christ. Embrace the Lordship of Christ. You may have noticed I skipped a very important part of the story. Take a look at 1 Kings 2, 1 to 4. Solomon has already been installed as king. David knows he's about to die. Remember that. Solomon's already king. He's already in the kingdom. He knows he's about to die. David knows he's about to die. And so he sits his son down and he tells him something that is meant to be the plot line for the rest of the book of Kings. Verses 2 to 4. David says to Solomon, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. That's the Bible. That you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me. And he goes on to quote God's promise to him. Friends, David learned something very important that he was passing on to Solomon. David learned that the best way to use your authority is to understand that you are a person under a better authority. The best way to use your authority, that's what David's trying to communicate to Solomon. The best way to use whatever authority you have is to understand that you are under a greater authority. He used his final words to his freshly minted kingly son to tell him, now that you're an authority, Solomon, your rule is going to go well if you place yourself under the authority of God's good and gracious word. Only then will you prosper. Don't start to believe your own hype, man. Submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to his word. Only then will you prosper. Otherwise, you're going to wind up just like Adonijah. David learned that himself, guys, when he abused Bathsheba and murdered her husband. He abused his authority and everything went wrong. And when he repented and learned to be under the authority of the Lord by submitting to the word of the Lord, then David prospered. He wrote a song about it. It was so important. And it went something like this. Want to be the blessed man? Walk not in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. Or sit in the seat of scoffers. But delight yourself in the law of the Lord. and Meditate on it day and night. That you might be like a tree planted firmly by streams of water. That your leaves would bear fruit in season. In all that you do, you would prosper. Don't follow the wicked. Meditate on the word. Prosperity. Real prosperity, by the way. Not stuff that rots. Beloved, avoid self-exaltation. And embrace the Lordship of Christ by submitting to his word. And then whatever authority you have, you'll prosper in it. If you use it for your own glory, it will go bad. If you use your responsibilities for God's glory, submitting to his word, serving others, then you'll prosper. That was David's counsel. That is Jesus' counsel after he triumphs over sin and death. He says to his disciples, all authority is mine. Therefore, you guys go. He says basically the same thing that David says to Solomon. Go, teach, make learners, make disciples of me, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Teach these learners, these people that come up under my authority, that they're under a greater authority. Teach them to obey that authority. And I'm going to be with you throughout it all. Die to self, live to Christ as king by submitting to his good commands. I'm going to end here. Brothers, let me speak to you especially this morning. Speak to the men in the room. Look down there at verse 2, chapter 2. Write this word on the top of your mirror and look at it every day. I exhort the men in this room this morning. Be strong and show yourselves as men. By walking in the ways of your king, by being strong and gentle, by being convictional and compassionate, by walking in the ways of your king, by humbling yourself and lifting up our sisters in Christ, serving your wives and children, by being slow to speak, quick to listen, by using whatever authority it is you have for the sake of others, not your own glory and your own position.
This is how, brothers, you prosper. Lord willing, pray for us as elders that we do this. Not by promoting yourself and your position, but by submitting to the lordship of Christ in all of his commands. Teaching others to obey him in love and in gentleness. This is strength. This is biblical manhood. Finally, friends, church family, none of us are king. Avoid exaltation. Embrace the lordship of Christ. Submit to his good and gracious commands. Knowing God is going to keep his promises. Trust and treasure Christ as king. Turn to him for life, for peace, for forgiveness. And find that prosperity. It won't be easy, but you will find that prosperity. Do as David says. Listen to his commands and keep his commands. This is life in the kingdom. And soon enough, guys, we'll be home. And we will see our king. And we will be thankful that we gave our all to him by avoiding self-exaltation and by submitting to Christ as king and serving others in those commands. He's good. His word is powerful. And nothing can thwart his purposes in the world. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for Jesus the son of David who rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years and then rode in his own power up to heaven where he sits at your right hand ruling over the nations, not just one geopolitical state. And because of his atoning work on the cross and in the resurrection, there's hope for sinners like us that we can be amazingly even more than Solomon, be part of a kingdom that endures forever. Oh, God, teach us to listen to the prophets. Teach us to listen to the priests that are faithful. Teach us to listen to the true king, Christ. May we live in his ways and find the kind of prosperity that you promise. And for those that are not there, God, help them to see and learn the lessons of Adonijah and his team. We love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy to us in giving us these words. Care for us, God as we labor by your grace and for your glory to live for Jesus as King. In whose name we pray, amen.